In episode 530 with Peter Gray, we are diving deep into the importance of play, uninterrupted play, independent of adults for children, what this does to their brain and their development. We also discuss homeschooling versus schooling, screen time, and so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, Comparisonitis, and Time Magic. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so glad that you are here. This is an important conversation, especially for parents and parents-to-be. And for those of you that have never heard of Peter, he is a research professor in psychology and neuroscience at Boston College, who has conducted and published research in behavioral biology, development, psychology, anthropology, and education. He is an author of an internationally acclaimed introductory psychology textbook called Psychology Worth Publishing, which is now in its eighth edition, which is pretty amazing. And this views all of psychology from an evolutionary perspective. Now, his recent research focuses on the role of play in human evolution and how children educate themselves through play and exploration when they are free to do so. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to get him on the show. He has expanded on these ideas in his books, which have been translated into 18 languages, which is pretty amazing. He also authors a regular blog called Freedom to Learn for Psychology Today magazine and a Substack series entitled Play Makes Us Human. He is also one of the founders of the Nonprofit Alliance for Self-Directed Education and of the nonprofit Let Grow, the mission of which is to renew children's freedom to play and explore independently of adult control. So important. So for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 530. Now let's bring on Peter Gray. Peter, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. Before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Uh, for breakfast. I have a, a great vegetable garden and the beans are coming in crazy. So I've been eating beans for every meal. So I had scrambled eggs with green beans in them this morning. Beautiful. We have lots of beans thriving in our garden at the moment as well. So, And my daughter, she just constantly goes up, picks them any time of the day and wants to eat them. Good. So To get us started, I wanted to begin with a crucial definition so that we are on the same page. What is play? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because a a lot of people, you know, play is a word that is used in a lot of different ways. I mean, there are a lot of English words that have a variety of meanings somewhat related to one another. Sometimes the meanings are not even that closely related to one another. So we use the word play in everyday speech to refer to a lot of things. So the question is, what do I mean by play? What do 
other play scholars mean by play, at least those play scholars that I agree with, what do they mean by play? So I, I have actually published a definition of play because to me it's important to know what it is that we're talking about when we're talking about play. So the definition that I have uh, published, and and it, it really seems to jive with the way most researchers who study play define it. And it also jives with the way that young children understand play. There's actually research that asks questions, is this play, is that play, and so on and so forth. And it fits very much with my definition. So the first, uh, my, my definition is that play is activity that involves the following four characteristics. An activity can be more or less playful depending on the degree to which these characteristics are present. But for it to be fully play, all these characteristics need to be present. And the first, and I would argue the most important characteristic, is that it is self-chosen and self-directed. It's something that the players come up with themselves. It's something where the players themselves are in charge. So that means that if uh, an adult stands up in front of a room and says, now children, we're all going to play this, it's not play. That's an adult-directed activity. It's not a child-directed activity. It's not play. So the second characteristic of play is that it's intrinsically motivated. It's something that you're doing for its own sake. It's reward in itself. You're not doing it for some end outside of itself. You're not doing it to get a grade on a, on a report card. You're not getting it for a gold star, doing it for a gold star or a trophy or money. You're doing it because you want to do it. Play is how children discover what they like to do and pursue and become good at what they like to do. The third characteristic, which Seems a little bit counterintuitive to some people, but I think when you think about it, it makes complete sense. Play is always structured. Play has, there's no such thing as unstructured play. Play is always structured, and it's structured by the players themselves. Another way of saying it, the way the, the great developmental psychologist Lev Vygotsky said it way back in the 1920s was, all play has rules. The rules are rules in the child's head about what it is that you're doing. There are another better term might be guidelines. When you're playing this, you're doing this. If you're making a sandcastle, you're making a sandcastle. You're not just randomly piling up sand. If you're pretending your young children have a having a game of let's pretend we're going to the ball at the king's palace you are the princess and you have to act like the princess or whatever the part is you're playing and so on. So play is among other things, it's how children learn to control their impulses in order to do the thing that they have in their head that they're supposed to be doing while playing. And the fourth characteristic is that although play always has rules, the rules never specify exactly what you have to do. There's always plenty of room for creativity. And in fact, play is always creative. There's always creativity in play. It's probably the most creative thing anybody ever does. Play and creativity, some people almost think they're the same thing. 
And for young children especially, play is generally highly imaginative. And in fact, there's at least an imaginative component, I would argue, to essentially all of play. So that's the definition. To the degree that it has those characteristics, it's play. Mm, I love that so much. And there's so much I want to dive into with you today. But let's talk about the impact of play on childhood development. So childhood is a time when the brain develops at such a mind-blowing pace, especially those first five years. Now, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, so this is such a topic that I love so much. Now, childhood is also a time where traditionally we do the most play. So I'm guessing that from an evolutionary perspective, play must be really important for brain development. Is that right? Yes, it is. And in fact, the evidence is that all young mammals play. Most mammals don't play in adulthood. Some do. And I've been writing a little bit about that, why some mammals play in adulthood. But essentially all mammals, at least as far as we know from the studies that have been, all, all, all young animals that have been studied, mammals in particular, play. And the question is, why do they play? They play because this is how they practice the skills that are essential for development. There, that's how every, there are certain kinds of skills that every young animal has to develop, and they may have instinctive tendencies to behave in that kind of way, but they have to practice it in order to be good at it. So predatory animals play at predation. Prey animals play at dodging and darting and getting away from predators. The research shows that those animals that have the most to learn play the most. And not surprisingly, then, given that our species has way more that we have to learn to become fully developed human beings, it's no surprise that when we look at children in cultures that allow children to play, unlike the culture that I live in and to degree the culture that you live in, but in cultures that allow children to play as much as they want, children play way more than other animals do. And they play at all of the skills that are essential for human beings everywhere. They play physically, and this is how they develop their physical body. They chase one another around. They wrestle. They climb trees. They, children are not designed to run laps around a circle. They're not designed to swim back and forth in a pool or to lift weights or operate those silly machines in an exercise place. They are designed to chase one another around until their sides are splitting. And children play that way in every culture when they have the opportunity. So they're developing their physical body. As part of what they're doing when they play in these kind of physical ways, they also like to play in risky ways. They like to do things that are a little bit dangerous, things that are testing their courage. And this is how children develop courage. It turns out that other young mammals also play in risky ways. They climb trees higher than maybe their mom would want them to. They wrestle in ways and chase one another on goat kids, skip along cliffs. Why do they skip along cliffs when they could fall and hurt themselves? Young chimpanzees have been observed climbing to the top of a tree and then dropping and then catching themselves just before they hit the ground. So why do, and our children, when we allow them to, they play in in risky ways. They like to climb trees. They like speed. They like to play with dangerous tools. They like to do all these kinds of things. Why do they do that? 
it's because one of the most important things that every organism, especially every mammal, has to develop is courage. And this is how they develop courage. This is how they learn. I can do this thing. I can climb this tree this high. And I felt some fear, but I can. I controlled my mind. I controlled my body. I lived to tell the tale. And they come down a more confident, more courageous person for playing that way. So those are a couple of the ways they play. But children learn language in play. We don't teach children their native language. They learn it in play. They hear, of course, they have to hear the language or they're not going to learn it. But their first cooing and babbling is always playful. And their first use of words is never to ask for anything. It's playful. As they get a little older, they begin to play with the construction of language. And once they're playing with other children, then they're using language in very sophisticated ways to organize their play. There's actually research that shows that young children, this research was done with five and six-year-olds, engage in far more sophisticated language when they're talking to one another in play than they ever do when they're talking to an adult. Because in play, they have to communicate. They have to make themselves clear to their playmates what they're doing, who gets to use this necklace, who has to be the pet dog in this game of house and so on and so forth. There's a lot of negotiation discussion going on. So they're learning language in play. Now, while I'm on this part of play, you know, perhaps the most important thing that human beings have to learn is how to get along with other human beings. And so it's no surprise that children everywhere want most of all to play with other children. And they want to do it away from adults, where adults are not interfering, adults are not intervening, adults are not solving their problem. And the reason that Mother Nature designed children to want to do that is because it's so important for children to learn how to get along with their peers, how to manage themselves with their peers without some protector there telling them what to do and solving their problems for them. So when children are playing together, they have to decide together what they're playing. They have to negotiate. And there's a lot of negotiation that goes on in play. They're learning to compromise. They're learning that they have to pay attention to the needs of the other person. What an important skill that is. That cannot be taught by lecture. It can only be learned by experience. And the experience in which children learn this is play. So, for example, if you and I are children playing a game, uh, playing together, we want to play with one another, but maybe I'm a bit of a bully. I want you to do exactly what I want you to do. And what are you going to do if I do that? You're going to quit. If you're a self-respecting child, you're just going to quit. You're just going to say, you know, if you're going to just run things like this, I'm going home. Well, that's what children do. And that that's how children learn, wait a minute, I've got to pay attention. If I really want to play with other people, and I do want to play with other people, I've got to pay attention to their needs, not just my own needs. So this is another thing that children learn in play. Children learn to, as I mentioned earlier on, all play is creative. Children are constantly creating in play. And so play exercises children's creativity. It exercises their imagination. Imagination is a uniquely human quality, as far as we can tell, and it underlies all higher order thinking. When we're so-called higher order thinking, we're thinking, well, suppose this were true, then what else has to be true? This is what the researchers call hypothetical deductive reasoning. Well, little children are engaged all the time in that, in their fantasy play. Let's pretend there's a troll under the bridge. If there's a troll under the bridge and they're pretending the kitchen table is the bridge, then 
well, we better give the troll a cookie so it doesn't eat us. This is hypothetical deductive reasoning, which children are practicing all the time. So I've just really, in a whirlwind fashion, give you an, given you some ideas of the things that children learn in play. These are the things that children learn in play are the most important things that children have to learn, way more important than what we teach them in school. Yes. I just want to pause there because I want that to land for everybody. Play is way more important than what they learn in school. It is so important. It helps their brain develop. Does it also help with kids' mental health and mental well-being? Well, so this is something that I have written a fair amount about. Now, the data that I have have been making use of comes from the United States, but I think a lot is true throughout the developed world. Over the last 50 or 60 years, maybe even a little bit longer, we have gradually been taking children's play away from them. Children play played less in the 1980s than they did in the 1950s. They played less in the 1990s than they did in the 1980s. They play much less now than they did at the turn of the century. They're not playing less because they don't want to play. They're not playing less because the iPhone is taking up all their time, as some people believe. In fact, they're playing on the iPhone. That's one of the few ways they are allowed to play. <laughs> play in inverted commas. Not necessarily with commas. There is real play. On the, uh, there is real play. And video games are real play. Much of what they're doing is play. Their interactions with one another is play. It's, it's, it's one of the few ways we uh, still allow children to play. So that's what we've done. We've taken children's opportunities to go outdoors and just play with other kids away from adults, largely away from them. We are occupying their time with more and more adult-directed activities. We're occupying their time with more schooling than ever before, with homework that they didn't used to have in the past, with adult-directed activities that are really school-like activities, even when they're not in school or doing homework. Instead of just going out and playing, we're putting them in adult-directed sports, which is not play. It's much more like school. They're being told what to do, and they're being directed and cared for by adults rather than learning how to create their own activities. So we have changed the culture in ways that we're depriving children of play. Over this same period of time that it play, children have less and less opportunities to play, we are seeing ever-increasing rates of anxiety, of depression, of even, terrible to even say it, suicide among school-age children, especially teens, but even, the, even these days, younger children. This is not normal. People almost have come to think it's normal for teenagers to, you know, it's hormones or whatever the heck it is people want to say it is, but it's not normal. This is not has not been true throughout past history. This was not true up until the mid to late part of the 20th century. It was not true. We have seen huge increases in all sorts of mental disorders among, among teens, especially, but we're beginning to see it even among younger children. The rate of suicide of school-aged children, including teens, is now roughly seven times what it was in the 1950s. The rates of other 
based on clinical questionnaires, the rates of what today would be diagnosed as major depressive disorder or, or a significant anxiety disorder are about 10 times what they were in the middle of the 20th century. This is data from the United States. So I would be very surprised <laughs> if there isn't a cause-effect relationship here. And I have recently published an article in the Journal of Pediatrics presenting multiple reasons for believing there's a cause-effect relationship. It almost seems surprising to me that one has to prove through research that there's a cause-effect relationship here. It ought to be obvious. You take play away from children, and what do you expect, <laughs> right? Play is what makes children happy. Play is the source of happiness. Ask any child the things that make them happy, and it's play. You know, and you put them in school all the time. You put them in situations where they're constantly judged and micromanaged. All of us would be depressed and anxious and if we had to live the way we make our children live. If our job was the way a typical school is, micromanaged, you can't talk to your neighbor, you have to ask for permission to go to the bathroom, you're constantly being evaluated and compared to your workmates to see who's better or worse, we would all be anxious. We would all be depressed. We might even say, is life worth living, you know, if we were subjected to that. And yet this is what we subject our children to. And then we're surprised that they become anxious and depressed. But, you know, I've done more research. There's, there is, you know, I, I say this should be logical, but there's a lot of other research evidence. So, for example, there's research evidence showing that children whose parents are more controlling, whose parental style is what is commonly called helicopter parenting, that when these young people are in college, they suffer from mental disorder at higher rates. They suffer from anxiety, depression, suicide at higher rates than children whose parents are more less controlling while they're growing up. There's also research showing that with young children, showing that those children that are allowed more free time for their own self-directed activities, and this would largely be play, also score higher on various tests of abilities that one would expect would help protect them from uh, anxiety and depression. So they score higher on tests of executive functioning, for example, which has to do with your ability to solve problems, your ability to, in some sense, take control of your life. They'd score better on tests of social ability. They have more friends. Their social uh, abilities are higher. And we all know that one of the big causes of anxiety and depression is not having friends, feeling alone in the world, not having people to talk to, not having a sense of support from your peers. It's not enough to just be supported by your parents. You need to be supported by peers. Peers are the people you're growing up with. Peers are your future mates, your future mates in every sense of a mate, you know, your workmates, your friends, and your romantic mate at some point. And there's also evidence that there are actually ways of testing um, self-control, the ability to kind of control your impulses. And children who have more opportunity to play or score higher on that. These are all abilities that one would expect to play a role in mental health. And we see the children who have more time to play score higher on, on indices of those abilities. So that's just some of the research that has been done. There's just one more category of research I might mention. There's, there is research 
in which adults, all of roughly the same age and the same social class and so on, are asked to recall their own play histories from when they were in elementary school age. And what is found, there's been, now been two studies of this sort, is that those who recall more free play, and especially adventurous play, the kind of play that is a little bit risky, are doing better in every way as, as adults than those who recall less of that kind of play. They're socially better off. They're happier with their lives. They are more flexible uh, in adapting to change and all of these kinds of things that one would predict would be abilities that result from having a rich play life in childhood. So many important things you have mentioned here. And I just want to go back to what you were talking about before about putting our kids in school and this idea of overscheduling our kids. I know for a lot of people that I know, they have swimming lessons on Monday, they have ballet on Tuesday, they have piano on Wednesday, they're at school all day. They have a full schedule for their children, which doesn't allow them any space for that play. And I think this idea of, I know it comes from a good place. I think a lot of parents, they want to either give their child everything that maybe they didn't have, and they want to provide all of these things like swimming lessons and ballet and piano, and they want to offer all of this. But what is that actually doing to them? This is the question that we need to ask ourselves. When they're in school all day, which is very structured, and then every afternoon is structured with a different activity, and there's no space left for play, what is that actually doing to our children? So, you know, one way to think of this is the, the major task of childhood is to learn how to take control of your own life. And where do you learn how to take control of your own life if you're always in situations where somebody else is taking control of what you're doing? Somebody else is solving your problems. Somebody else is doing this for you. Somebody else is telling you what to do. Somebody else is judging you all the time. You don't learn. Somebody else is telling you what's worth doing and not. You're not learning what who you are. You're not learning what you like to do. You're not learning that you can solve problems. It's almost a recipe for teaching children that they're helpless. And I can understand the motives that for parents doing this. One motive is this. One way that society has changed over the period that I've been talking about as play has been reduced, as the amount of time in school has been greatly increased, as testing has increased in school, as the emphasis on school and the emphasis on all these extracurricular formal activities has increased. One thing that has happened, at least in the United States, and I can't say for sure about other places, but at least in the United States, one thing that has happened is that parents worry about their children's futures more than they used to. And I think there's good reason why they worry about their children's futures more than they used to. The economy has changed, certainly in the United States. The, you know, beginning in the 1980s, which was when the, the decline in play, that slope was the steepest, began in the 1980s in the United States. That's when there were economic changes here that, took away the power of labor unions that changed the tax structure. And the result is that the distinction, the difference between the richest and the poorest in the United States has grown ever since. 
so that there's a huge gap between those who so-called make it and those who don't. A gap that is much greater than was true decades ago. So parents worry with some reason that their children could end up homeless, even if they're growing up in a middle-class home. Maybe their children will end up on the street, not able to get a job, not able to make a living or live in a house. Parents legitimately worry about that. They didn't worry about that when I was a kid. Nobody was worried about that. You could get a union job. You could get, I had, none of my uncles or my mother or stepfather had gone to college. They all made a good living, you know. They were they were blue-collar workers, and and they could raise a big family, not just a little family. They could, all, they could own a house. They could even own a cottage. They could take vacations. They could do all these things that we think of are the American dream, and they were just workers. But now you can't do that. You can't expect to do that. And so parents have got the idea in their head, which I think is a mistaken idea, but it's an understandable one, that their children have to be building a resume <laughs> beginning while they're still in diapers. <laughs> you know, They have to be working towards getting into the best schools and then into the best, ultimately the best universities. And otherwise, they're going to be flops. Now, I've shown and a lot of others have shown this is not true, that in fact, there are people who get in the best universities, they still end up homeless. So, and there are people who don't go to universities who do very well. And we're not mistaken that there's a huge gap between rich and poor. I think that we overemphasize the importance of university and all of that in order to make it. I think that there's an overemphasis on that, but that would be another talk. It would be, But I think that that's part of it. So parents are very worried, and so they want to take control of their children. They want to, they believe that their children are learning valuable skills that might be marketable skills. There was an interesting book written a few years ago by a woman named Dana Boyd. Her last name is Boyd. She spells it with a small letter B, B-O-Y-D, called Playing for Keeps, if I remember it right, remember the title right. This was a study of parents who spend a lot of time and money putting their children into competitive activities. These are young children, like 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And she studied families that are putting huge investments into their children. She chose, if I remember right, three different kinds of competitive activities. One is was soccer, another was chess, and another was dance. She wanted three very different kinds of competitive activities. Can you please tell me what chess is? I don't know what chess is. Chess, C-H-E-S-S, the game that you have kings and knights and pawns. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I misunderstood. Okay, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So <laughs> yeah, we, we speak slightly different accent. So here's what she found when she interviewed the parents who were spending, they're spending a lot of money, a lot of time. And the question that she was trying to get is, why are they doing this? <laughs> and the answer, the primary answer she got is these are people who believe that we live in a very competitive society and that it's very important to develop a competitive attitude 
and to develop the general skills that they see as competitive, wanting to win, (laughs) working to win, (laughs) persisting to win. And so these parents would reward their children for improvement. So for example, if you raised your rank as a chess player, they might reward the child with a trip to Disneyland. They might give actually give money to the child for improving. You know, so they are, I pointed out earlier, on play is something you're not doing for an extrinsic reward. These are parents who believe it's very important to learn to work for extrinsic rewards, to want those rewards and to do the things you need to do to get those rewards. Interestingly, when she interviewed the children themselves, (laughs) so you would hope that the children, for example, who were playing chess or doing dance or doing soccer would say, I just really love this activity. She didn't find they'd said that. <laughs> when she said, so what do you like about this? They would say things, well, I like the trip to Disneyland that my parents give me if I improve my rank, or I like the, I like the trophies that I get, or the extra allowance I get if my parents judge me as doing well. These parents are in the extreme, but I think they represent something that a lot of parents think. They might not put it into the same stark words that these parents did, but it's in their mind. They believe it's important to teach their children to compete. When they ask the children themselves, the children didn't say they like to do things, and they also didn't really say they like to win. What they said was they liked the prizes for winning. And some of them even said, I actually feel kind of bad when I win because that means that this other person that I was playing with lost. (laughs) And they were more interested in making friends. That was not a motive on the part of the parents. You don't make friends by beating people, right? That's not how you make friends. You make friends by cooperating with people, by helping them. And the children recognized that, and they felt bad about the fact that these were people they would like to have as friends. But they're set in this condition where they're kind of supposed to be enemies. (laughs) They're trying to beat them in this competition. And we're more and more putting children into competition. Well, I think that this is misguided. I do believe that we are in some sense in a competitive world. But my experience, and I've lived a pretty long time, and I know a lot of people who are very successful. My experience is that the people who are really successful are not successful because they're out to beat other people. They're successful because they know how to cooperate. They like other people. They get along well with other people. They make a lot of friends. They get collaborators. They're not doing it for selfish reasons, but the result is if you like somebody else, they like you and you help other people and they help you. The people who are really successful, successful not just financially, but including financially, people who are really successful are the people, but successful in the sense they're having a happy life, they have a lot of friends, the people like them. That's real success. And those are people who don't think of life as a business of trying to beat the other person. They think of life as a business of trying to be as helpful to other people as they can. Children, in my experience, left to their own devices, rarely compete. Sometimes they compete, but it's good-natured competition generally. My experience is even when they're playing a pseudo-competitive game, 
they don't really care much about winning. They care more about having fun. They care more about cooperating. They recognize that if they're constantly beat the other person, the other person isn't going to want to play any longer. So they work out ways or they're self-handicapping where they change the rules, they do this or that, so that it's much more fair and more fun for everybody. Children do that. When adults run it, it's all about winning. Mm-hmm. It's a much nicer way to approach things when you are approaching it about helping people as opposed to winning and getting your way. It just, it's a much nicer way to look at things. But I want to talk about the schooling system. You call a school a curiosity killing institution. Can you talk more about what you mean by this and why is it time to stop asking what's wrong with our children and start asking what's wrong with our education system? Yeah, so children are born with a strong drive and ability to educate themselves. Their instincts have been shaped over thousands and thousands of years of natural selection in which there was no such thing as schools, in which the expectation was that children were integrated into the society and they would learn by observing, by doing, by playing. They would learn by watching and asking questions as they got older. And that worked beautifully all through history. (laughs) At some point, we decided that children needed to go to school. Our reason for initially deciding that children needed to go to school had nothing to do with education as as most of us think of education today. The first schools for the masses were in in Prussia, the German province of Prussia at that time, and really going all the way back to the 17th century. And they the schools were run by Protestant ministers. So the this was the the Protestant Re- Reformation had occurred. The Protestants developed schools for uh, several reasons, one of which was that they believed that, unlike the Catholics, they believed that it was important for everybody to read the Bible. The reason for learning to read is so you could read the Bible. There wasn't any other particular reason why you would want to read. But everybody should see the Word of God directly from the Bible rather than hear it through a hierarchy as one does in the Catholic Church was their belief. So that was part of why they developed schools. So it was to teach reading, but even more important to them when you look at it was to teach obedience. And obedience was the primary curriculum of schools. And in fact, it's pretty easy to teach reading. You wouldn't need much school to teach reading. There's a lot of evidence. And in fact, if you're growing up, you need to teach reading if, if a child is growing up in an illiterate family and everybody in the neighborhood is illiterate, the child isn't going to on their own learn to read. But children growing up in a literate family all learn to read. They don't need to be taught to read. They just all learn to read. There's a lot of evidence for that, some of which comes from studies of homeschoolers and non-schoolers who don't teach reading. The kids just learn it. Some of it comes historically from looking back before most children were going to school. If they were growing up in a literate family, they learned how to read. You just assumed they would, and they did. So teaching reading was a small part of of what was done. It was a valuable part for kids who didn't have reading, but this could have been done in a few sessions, you know, without, without the kind of effort that they took. So when you read the manuals for 
school masters. They were called masters in those days, and they were men. <laughs> While the the manual says talks about you know it's useful to teach them to read, it's useful to enlighten them in various ways. But your primary job is to teach obedience. Your primary job, and in fact, sometimes the way it's worded, your primary job is to take control of their will. The, the belief on the part of the religious people at that time was that willfulness and play as part of willfulness is the devil's playground. And you have to quite literally beat the devil out of children. And so the primary method of instruction in those schools was beating. And so children were given lessons, and if they didn't succeed in their lessons, they would be beaten, <laughs> physically beaten with a stick. And that was the way school operated. In other ways, it operated very similar to the way schools are today. There would be lessons given, and the children had to memorize the lessons and feed them back. And if they didn't feed it back properly, they would be punished. Today, we punish them by shaming them in one way or another. In those days, we punish them by beating them. I'm not sure which is worse. So that's the way schools developed. And I think if we understand that the purpose of school was not to teach critical thinking, not to teach creativity, not to promote curiosity. The purpose of school was to suppress all of those things. Those are, that's the devil. <laughs> You've got to get children to listen to authority and to behave in accordance with authority. And so when we look at schools today, the structure of school makes sense now. If we think of it, well, Schools were really developed for that purpose, and they still serve that purpose, even though that's not the purpose most teachers think that they serve. It's not why most teachers go, I have yet to meet a teacher who, most teachers are wonderful people, who says the reason I went into, into, into teaching and work in a school is because I really think it's important to beat the willfulness out of children, right? But that's what they're doing. And it's not, they're not doing it because they want to do it. They're doing it because they're part of a structure that works that way. There's no way that you can have 20 or 30 kids in a classroom at the same time, expecting them to all be doing the same thing at the same time, unless you have some mechanism to make them obey. <laughs> If it's not beating, it's got to be something else. So the primary lesson of school is obedience. The only way you can pass in school is to do what you're told to do. No matter how stupid you think it is, you have to do it. Otherwise, you'll fail. Almost the only way you can fail is not to do what you're told to do. So the true, real lesson of school is obedience, and every child learns that. They know. <laughs> they may not articulate it, but they know this is not a place for, cur for curiosity. Curiosity is disruptive. You, if, if every child expressed what they were really interested in, you would have chaos in the classroom. And chaos in the classroom might be a good thing. And there are scum schools, democratic schools, that expect, they don't even call it a classroom, they expect chaos in the school. That's the way children learn. But our schools don't tolerate that kind of chaos. Any teacher that allows that kind of chaos is going to be fired. So you've got to control them. And that means 
They cannot express curiosity. They cannot think critically. They've got to do what they're told to do. So unless we homeschool, what do we do? How do we rectify this? So I think that there are some things we can do to make schools a little bit better. When I talk to school administrators and teachers and so on and so forth, I don't try to tell them to just close the schools. I know they're not going to do that. But what I do say is, look, instead of constantly doing more of what you're doing, why not do less? (laughs) Less homework, (laughs) fewer classes, fewer tests. Maybe go back to two recesses a day that are at least half an hour long rather than these little short recesses. Lengthen the summer vacation instead of keep reducing it. You know, in in the United States, the school year is now five weeks longer than it was when I was a kid. Not only that, but when I was a kid, there was no homework in elementary school. Now even kindergarten kids have homework. The amount of time that even little children are spending in school is way, way more than what children spent before. There's no evidence that all the children are actually learning more now than they were then. And in fact, there's some evidence that they're learning less. We're burning them out. More time drilling for tests does not mean more learning. Children need recesses. They need to have opportunities to be creative. We've taken what creative things we used to have in schools out of the schools, at least in the United States. And so I try to encourage going back to that. Another thing that I'm working with the nonprofit organization Let Grow which Lenore Skenazy, who wrote the book Free Range Kids, is the president of, and she and I and a couple of others are founders of this organization. And we're working with schools to bring real play into the schools, to bring adventurous activities into the schools. It's still a small minority of schools that are adopting it, but we're up to several hundred schools that are doing this thing now, and it's beginning to spread. One of the things we've brought to schools is what the schools call play club. And kids can sign up for this. And in most schools, pretty much all the kids sign up for it. And it's an hour of free play, free mixed age play, where all the kids in the school are playing together who want to be in play club. They're using the outdoor playground. They're using the gymnasium, sometimes the hallways between the playground and the gymnasium. Sometimes an art room is dedicated to this. In addition, there's all kinds of ways of playing. There might be 100 or 150 kids playing together. This has been tremendously well-received, of course, by the children, but also even as with experience by the teachers, by the school administrators, by the parents, because they see how much happier the children are. And they see that the children are actually doing better in their classes as a result of this because they're more, they like school better. They're not so angry. They're not so depressed all the time. They're more willing to speak up in class. They know one another. They feel better about their classmates because they've been playing together. The little kids are no longer afraid of the big kids because they've been playing with the big kids. So there's a lot of benefits of that. So there are some things that can be done in traditional schools. I don't think that's the ultimate solution, though. I think the ultimate solution is this, and I think it's already happening, at least in the United States, and that is that people are leaving schools. More and more families are taking their children out of school. The rate of homeschooling is soaring in the United States. It's now up to something like 8% of families with school-age children are homeschooling their child. And homeschooling is really the door to self-directed education. Nobody, even families that think they wanna, they're going to give the child the same curriculum as school would, that doesn't last very long. 
They adapt to the child's interests and the child's needs. They modify what they're doing. They begin more and more listening to the child. Pretty soon, it's really the child who's determining the curriculum, just as the child ought to be determining the curriculum. As more and more families are doing this, they're able to get together with other families doing it so the kids can get together with one another. There's more and more learning centers being formed for self-directed learning where you have to register as a homeschooler to be doing this because the center isn't a registered school. This is what's happening. I think that when we reach some critical number, like maybe 15% of families instead of just 8% of families, this is going to be recognized as a completely normal thing to do. And it's not going to seem strange. And People are going to see how much happier those kids are, and they're going to see the evidence that they're doing well, because already we have evidence that kids growing up this way are doing very well, who grew up this way are doing very well as adults. And then I think the schools will empty out. So the schools are going to either have to, at that point, radically change what they're doing in order to draw people back in, or they will simply become extinct. What are your thoughts on the Montessori and Steiner schooling systems? Well, I'm not an expert on these, but I have observed some of the schools. First of all, Montessori schools vary tremendously from school to school. Maria Montessori would probably roll over in her grave if she saw some of them. (laughs) And they're very different. And some of them are almost self-directed. One of the things, but there's a couple of things about Montessori schools that are problems. One is they tend to be very expensive. Their private schools generally very expensive. You have to be quite wealthy to send your child there. That's not true the kind of democratic schools that I have studied, where you don't need so many staff members because you're not monitoring the kids so much. You're not you're not keeping track of them the same way. You're trusting them more. And you've got age mix. You've got kids of all ages and the older kids are helping the younger kids. So the kind of school that I am most interested in, like the Sudbury Valley School and the many schools modeled after it, are far less expensive than our typical public schools to operate, whereas Montessori schools are far more expensive. So that's one problem. The other problem is if those people who take Montessori literally I've heard this about some of the Montessori schools. I actually haven't observed it directly, but so I'm relying on what others have told me. I do know that Montessori, in her writing, believed in play, but she had a very clear notion of the kind of play that is valuable for children. So constructive play is valuable. So in Montessori, the children get blocks, and they get blocks that are designed to teach certain lessons, and so on and so forth. But fantasy play is not encouraged, at least in some of the schools. And Montessori herself said it shouldn't be encouraged. Part of the issue is that Montessori was had designed her program for children who have what we today would, would call uh, special needs or disorders, whatever we want to call them. And they were child, happened to be children who, in her view, were living too much in a fantasy world, and she wanted to get them out of the fantasy world. I just wanted to interject one thing here. I thought she created her system for adults with special needs. Do you know what was correct? Is it for the children or was it for adults? It's an interesting point. I read one or two of her books long ago, and I don't remember her talking about that. 
and I don't know the answer to your question. I've been assuming all along it was for children. And I think people who've described it to me said it was for children. But what you've heard may be right. It'll be interesting to see what, to look this up later on. But whatever, you know, the point that I'm making is even more plausible if she created it for adults. <laughs> totally. That's what I'm saying. It's like this was created for people with special needs. So I just want to highlight and underscore that whether it was children or adults. Right. The Steiner system, my complaint, my what I don't like about that, some of what I've just said about Montessori, I would say about Steiner too, but the, the problem with Steiner, in my opinion, is it's stuck in the past. <laughs> How so is it stuck in the past? So the belief is, I'll tell you a little story that illustrates the point. I, I was at a talk of uh, alternative schooling, and I was one of the speakers. And there was another speaker there who had, she was a Steiner, an ex-Steiner parent. So she had, her son had been a Steiner student, and they were a Steiner family. And she even showed slides to prove they were a Steiner family. They all were wearing knit hats, and they were playing only with wooden toys, and they were acting like Steiner people, right? So she was describing how her son had been begging for a computer so he could play video games like all the other kids are playing video games. But being in the Steiner family, they were opposed to this. They weren't going to give him video games. This was harmful. This is like, so this is what I mean by being stuck in the past. So then she get, tells this story where the boy had a terrible bicycle accident, almost died. He ended up being in the hospital for a long period of time, and he was still begging for a computer. And finally, they gave it to him. And according to the mom, he said, it was worth it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this idea that, you know, it's yet another kind of control over children that, you know, the Steiners, they're good in one sense. They don't push reading, but they almost discourage reading. I mean, some kids want to read when they're three and four and five years old. You know, Steiner would say that's bad. You know, don't, don't let them read until they're seven or eight. You know, I am much more in favor of letting kids decide. Don't go by some philosophy that was developed decades ago. <laughs> Don't go by, by what some adult thinks is good for children and not good for children. Children know what's good for them, and it's different for different children. So any kind of schooling system that's based on somebody's philosophy may be fine for some kids, but it may be terrible for other kids. Any school system that's based on the idea, let the kids decide, that's, in my experience, that works for pretty much everybody. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about screen time for a minute because one of the reasons that kids aren't spending as much time outside, you know, because being outside is very, very important and playing in nature is due to this radical increase in screen time. And we have seen the effects that this is having on some children. So what are your thoughts on screen time? Can screen time ever be high quality play? Should it ever replace play with other children and play independently? And what do you wish all parents knew about screen time? So many people are concerned about screen time. The first thing I want to say about screen time is that the world has changed in such a way 
that what we call screens are what used to be books, movie theaters, television, the telephone, magazines, encyclopedias. All of this now is on screens. <laughs> it's all there. So when we say the child is on screens, the child might be reading a book. The child might be writing an essay. The child might be writing poetry. The child might be reading Shakespeare. The child might be having an intelligent conversation with a friend. The child might be playing a really challenging video game with friends that's real play that involves all the characteristics of play other than actually the physical contact. There are so many things that the child is doing, and they are doing all these kinds of things. And so, and when we don't allow children to get out and get together in the real world, the screen allows them to get together at least this way. So the way you and I are getting together right now, children can get together that way. They weren't terribly socially isolated during COVID because they could get together on Zoom. Many children learned to use Zoom at that time and they were communicating. It was a savior for them. So the, the demonization of screens is very misplaced. It's very misplaced. At first, it wasn't too long ago that people were demonizing video games. And so there was this belief that boys were spending way too much time on video games. This was uh, socially isolating. It was causing them to become obese because it was, it was sedentary activity. And a lot of people thought it was corrupting their minds in one way or another. And a lot of people, because many of the video games that boys were playing were violent in content, the, the belief was this was going to be creating violence. So at that time, I really delved into video games in particular. That's what everybody was blaming at that time. People thought that video games should be banned or boys, children should not be allowed to play video games. And it turns out that on every one of these measures, there was no systematic scientific evidence to support those claims. No evidence at all that playing violent video games cause violence behavior. No, in fact, the, the research showed that those children who were playing video games had more friends, were more sociable, had better social skills than those who were not. No evidence that they were more obese than children who weren't playing video games. And on the mental development, there is now dozens and dozens of experiments, and there are many reviews of such studies. And I've published some of the, I've re published articles referring to some of those reviews that show that far from harming the brain, these games are developing the brain in amazing ways. That that there are many studies now that show that kids who play video games score higher on all kinds of mental tests. They're better at holding a lot of information in their mind. They're better at making quick but accurate judgments. They're better at changing when the strategy changes. They're more able to change strategy more quickly. And they're also, because so many of the games are social, they're developing social abilities. There are controlled experiments now where these were done sometimes in the past, and usually with girls or women, who because it was hard to find boys or men who don't play video games, where there were controlled experiments where some of them, these were usually college women, were assigned to play a certain video game a certain number of hours a week for a certain number of weeks, and others were assigned some other kind of control situation. And they were tested before and after on various kinds of mental tests. And there are dozens of such experiments showing 
considerable, long-lasting improvement on these mental abilities as a result of playing the video games that generalize to other other kinds of tasks. They're basically a lot of the abilities are the same kinds of abilities that are measured by IQ tests. So people aren't blaming video games so much as they did in the past. There's just the evidence is now just overwhelming that video games are valuable, not harmful for kids. So now what do they blame? They blame social media, right? And the focus is more on girls now than on boys because girls are on social media apparently more than boys are. And there is some evidence, at least in the United States, in fact, good evidence in the United States, that the rates of anxiety and depression are rising faster for girls over this period since we've had uh, social media as easy, since we've had easy access to social media, especially through the through mobile phones. So there's a lot of people talking about that. I have reviewed the evidence and I'm not convinced. The correlational evidence is not strong. There are very weak correlations when you have a large number of subjects where there seems to be a small correlation between amount of time on social media and reports of anxiety for women. It doesn't occur for girls. It does not occur for boys. No relationship at all for boys. A very small relationship accounts for less than 1% of the variance in anxiety is reported to account be account for by use of social media in the largest and most re, most referred to study that has been done. Other large scale studies show similar small correlations. The smaller studies are all over the map. Some of them show what look like large correlations of of relate of the more you play social uh, more you're on social media, the more anxious you are. Others show the opposite. The more you're on social media, the less anxious you are. And then there's others that don't show anything. So in a wash, the evidence is not strong from the correlational studies. There's some people who cite experimental studies. And the typical experiment goes like this. So you find some people who are willing to be in the experiment who use social media a lot and they are anxious. And so you do an experiment where half of them take a vow they're going to go off of social media for a certain length of time. And the other half don't go off of social media. You may have them do something else. So, But the, whatever else that you're having to do is not necessarily a very convincing kind of control situation. So the group that goes off of social media, after a period of time, they report, I'm less anxious now than I was before. Well, what those studies don't acknowledge is that it is very difficult to have proper controls in these experiments. What researchers, clinical researchers have long known, especially for anxiety, anything you do that you think will reduce anxiety will reduce anxiety, <laughs> if you believe it will. This is why drug manufacturers who create anti-anxiety pills or antidepressant pills, the same thing, have such difficulty proving that their pill works because they have to compare it to control a placebo group. And it turns out the placebo, just a sugar pill, is very effective in reducing anxiety and depression if the person believes it's going to reduce anxiety and depression. These studies have also not been long-term. So you go off of social media, for any kind of change you make, you know, something you've declared, 
something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast for the next week, or I'm going to do this or that. It has a psychological effect of, I feel I'm doing something for myself. I feel better. I'm not as anxious. I'm not as... So what I'm explaining is those studies, to me, are not convincing that social media was fundamentally the problem. I do believe that there are some people of all ages who recognize they're using social media in ways more than they want to and in ways that are not healthy for them. I know 50-year-olds who are in that category, and there are some kids in that category. I don't think it's an age difference. I just think that the solution is counseling. I think the solution is counseling and, and talking, discussing it, well, no matter who it is, whether it's your husband or your child. So I, I notice you're using social media a lot, and are you are you enjoying it? You know, is this, is this, uh, I miss you when you're on social media all the time. And wouldn't it be nice if we actually had our dinner together rather than you being on social? You could say that to your husband. I feel that anything you could say to your husband, you could say to your child. And anything that you couldn't say to your husband or your wife, you should not say to your child. So one way I put this is, you know, I just had this discussion today. There's a, there's a serious proposal by serious, by a serious researcher that we should have a law against anybody under 16 being on social media, a law, a federal law. <laughs> or if not that, if we don't have a law, then parents have an obligation to take that iPhone away from their child and give it back to them when they're 16. Now, the way I put this in a conversation earlier with a woman, as I said, so how would you feel if your husband came to you and also the way this is often couched is in terms of the adolescent brain, the adolescent brain. We always are hearing about how undeveloped the adolescent brain is. Now, it wasn't that long ago that we heard about how undeveloped the woman's brain is, and that's why men need to be the master. It wasn't that long ago we learned about how undeveloped Africans' brains are, and that's why it was appropriate that they were enslaved and they needed direction and they were really like children and so on. And so we're always in brain. And, the, and there were serious neuroscientists who documented these brain differences and attributed all the differences. So what I said to this woman is, well, suppose your husband came to you and said, well, I'm sorry, dear, but I'm going to have to take uh, your cell phone away from you. Your brain is not appropriate. It isn't developed well enough to be able to manage this dangerous tool. <laughs> and so it's my responsibility to take this away from, from you. How would you feel about that? And then the question is, how do children feel about it when they are approached that way and when that's the message that they get? So I think that this is a very misguided venture for several reasons. One is the evidence is not that strong that social media is harming children. The second is even if it were strong evidence, that's not the approach. The approach is counseling. The approach is discussion. The approach is identifying which child might be being harmed by it in the same way that you would do that for an adult and having a reasonable conversation and discussion with that child about it, not banning it. And the other thing, though, is that my research at democratic schools where children have access to their computers all day long, there's nobody saying they can't be on the computer, they're allowed to be on the computer or on their iPhone all day long if they want to be, 
but there's also lots of kids playing outdoors. And so because there's kids playing outdoors, they're attracted to the kids playing outdoors. So they get a balance. They, they are on the computer a lot. And well, they should be. The computer is the primary tool of our culture today. To deprive them of the computer would be like depriving people of books when we were young, when I was young. Uh, you're depriving them of the primary source of information and ideas if you deprive them of computer. They, and children are always also at the forefront of any new development. So naturally, they're going to be on the computer a lot. But they also, they're attracted to the outdoors when there are other kids outdoors playing too. And so most of the kids get a balance. In my experience, there have always been some kids, we might call them nerds, who are kind of indoor kids. And I've had enough experience with them to know that's not terrible if it's their own choice and they're happy enough. I mean, there were kids, even when I was a kid, who didn't want to go out fishing with me or out to to pick, play, pick up baseball. I couldn't understand it. All they wanted to do was read. <laughs> they spent all day reading. <laughs> Talk about social isolation. That's way more social isolating than a computer game where you're probably interacting with other kids and you're and and there's a lot of mental activity and creativity involved with it. Reading is far more passive. Reading is far more unnatural than being on the computer if you're thinking about it in relationship to what we did as hunter gatherers, where our natural ways of living. So. Uh, this is this is obviously I've sort of gotten on a soapbox here, but we hear so much against social media, and it just is. This is what every generation goes through. Every new generation of people is kind of at the forefront of the new things, and they become good at it, and they recognize this is really important for their future life. And we older people, we say, "Oh, this is." the ruination of the next generation, and we've got to stop it. This has been going on since Aristotle. (laughs) So what age, from your research, have you seen for someone to get social media and to get a phone? What do you recommend? Because for me, I'm still trying to get my head around all this because I've always thought my daughter's two and a half and I will be delaying her getting a phone for as long as humanly possible. So What are your thoughts on this? What age? I mean, or is it just dependent on the child? Well, here's what I think can be harmful. I think it's harmful, whether it's television or whether it is a computer, is fundamentally being used as a babysitter. And it is being used instead of other kinds of activities that the child might be engaged in. I don't think there's any harm in the cell phone itself for any child. I mean, it doesn't bite. It doesn't emit negative rays. It doesn't do anything negative to the child. No way does it do. Wait, but no, phones emit radiation and EMF. You know, that's what people used to say about television, too. There's zero evidence, zero evidence that it's emitting radiation that's harming people. So set that aside. That's not an issue. It really is not. It's, uh, that's a made-up fear. But what about those devices that you can hold up to your phone that then show you that they're emitting EMFs? Yeah, but that's there's one thing to say that they're emitting something. Another thing to say that this is entering your body and is doing some bodily harm. There's, this has been, I mean, the televisions emit stuff too. And it used to be that everybody's afraid of that. We now have enough experience with television to know not to worry about it. 
we've had really now 30 years of computers or a lot of people are on computers all the time. There's zero evidence that this is harming their body or their brain in some way as a result of radiation. I, I just don't think that's a serious concern. If, some, if there were ever some research showing this, I would say, yeah, well, let's be careful about it. But I, there's zero research evidence for this. So what harm can it be? You know, it's just another toy. For, for a two-year-old, it's just another toy. We are giving children toys that I think are far worse. <laughs> Here's a toy that I think is dreadful. So we're giving, I read an advertisement not long ago. So this is a, you could give your little child a doll that is your friend. And the doll talks to you. And whatever you say to the doll, the doll agrees with you. And the doll loves you. <laughs> and you can talk to the doll. And lo and behold, whatever you say to the doll is being recorded. And your mom can listen in <laughs> later on to what you said to your doll. So this is a toy that's an invasion of the child's privacy. Well, this is actually a toy that exists? This is a toy that exists. Right. This is a toy being sold to parents. And it's being sold on the grounds that this is good for your child because your child can gain self-esteem from this doll that's kind of rewarding your child for whatever the child says. This is an artificial friend. Uh, we are not allowing our children the real experience of real friends, so we've created this artificial friend, basically. That's not what the ad says, but that's what my interpretation of it is. That is a harmful toy. <laughs> Any kind of prying device, any kind of thing that, you know, we, and yet this is being sold as educational. This is being sold as something that's good for your child. <laughs> so that's, that's the kind of toy I'm worried about. What can a child do with a cell phone? You know, I mean, they're fairly indestructible, so I wouldn't worry about that. <laughs> you know, they could play with it. I think they would quickly get bored with it, but children a little bit older won't get so bored once they learn how to play games. Here's what I think. The knee-jerk response of most people in our society is if they perceive a problem that children are having, there's something more we have to take away from them. <laughs> that's the knee-jerk response. That's not why we're letting them outdoors. That's, not why, that's why we're not letting them get together in person. That's why we're controlling them so fully in all these other ways. Now we want to control them on this too. One more thing we're going to take away from them. And I think we should not be talking about taking things away from them. We should be talking about expanding the menu rather than contracting the menu. Don't take the cell phone away from them. Don't take video games away from them. Don't take YouTube away from them. Let them have all of that, but also let's recreate a world where there's all kinds of interesting things going on outside. There are lots of other children to play with outdoors. You don't have to interact with other children just on the computer. It's not harmful for them to interact on the computer, but it would be nice if they also had other ways to interact. And that's what we ought to be focusing on rather than taking one more thing away. This is really interesting and it's really got me thinking and it has challenged my perspectives on things too, which is always interesting. But let's circle back to play. What is your last piece of advice for parents to help our children play more independently? What's the last piece of advice? 
I think the biggest challenge is to find ways that your child can be with other children without adults telling them what to do. And at least in the United States, that's harder and harder to do. But it's a challenge that many parents have met, and it can be met, but you have to figure it out how to do that. Yes. It's so important. I know for me with my daughter, I love it when she goes in, into her own world and she starts creating her own little things and she's in her own world and I let her do that and I try not to interject. So I think it's really important that we allow our children to do that more often. And to do that, but not just that, but also to play with other children. So it's one thing to be playing yourself. It's another thing to be playing with other children where you have to learn the social skills needed to get along with other children. And it even is important to play with other children who are not your siblings because your siblings are there no matter what. They can't leave you. <laughs> you have to earn your friends. And earning your friends is a very important skill to be developed and it can only be developed by children playing with kids outside of the family. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. So you've definitely given us a lot of food for thought here and it's been incredible. Your work on play is amazing. So thank you for inspiring us to create space for our children to play independently more alone and with other children. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I truly hope that you are inspired to allow your children to play more freely, independently of adult control and supervision. And I hope you are inspired to look deeper into your children or future children's education and do what feels right and true for you. Now, I'm still not convinced on the whole screen time thing here and radiation and EMS and all of that stuff, but everyone is entitled to their own opinion. Truly, everyone is. And although they differ from what I believe, we're all entitled to our own opinion. So I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. And if you did, please do me a favor and subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will just pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for a new episode. Now, come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this episode. I would absolutely love to hear what deeply resonated with you, what key takeaways you are walking away with. Because if you don't stop and really reflect on what you got out of this conversation, this will just be something that you listen to and you don't implement into your life. And I want every single one of my episodes to inspire something within you to be a better, more embodied version of yourself. So after every episode, please write down your biggest key takeaways. Share them with me. Share them with your friends, your family, your partner. That is how you will embody them into your life so that you can be an even better, upgraded version of yourself. So thank you for being here and for wanting to be the best, healthiest, and happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You seriously rock. I am so grateful that you are here. Now, if there is someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them. 
Do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.